It's Matthew 8, 5 through 17 on page 813 of Your House Bible. When he had entered Capernaum, a a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Darren, if you would come up, I will pray for us. Father, thank you for today, for being our healer and taking our illnesses. Forgive us the times that we forget that you are that God, that you take all of the darkness and you bring it to the light. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to all your instruction. Be with Darren as he teaches. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Okay, so if you have your Bibles open, keep them open. All right, we're going to be looking at this passage quite a bit. Um, As we begin, I want to start off with a question. If you had to pick the most offensive or difficult passage in the Bible, what passage would you pick? Would it be the passages about sexuality, the passages about uh, creation in Genesis? Uh, Would it be the Song of Solomon? (laughs) Well, for the average Jew in Jesus' day, those passages wouldn't have made it anywhere near the top of the list. In fact, for the average Jew in Jesus' day, this passage would be near the top, if not at the top of the list. And the reason is because here, in these verses, we see the most unlikely of scenarios. We see a Roman centurion in heaven sitting next to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know what that was. I really don't. I'm sorry for your ears. My ears are ringing still. Um, but yeah, we see a Roman centurion in heaven, sitting next to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, okay, I'm going to tell you more about the significance of that later, but 
As we begin, let me say that the main point in this passage is actually really simple, yet profound and often taken for granted. And it's, and it's this. Matthew recorded this event to show us that Jesus' authority was so profound and, and so expansive that it was recognized and trusted by all kinds of people, even, even Gentiles. In other words, the gospel and the kingdom of God was for everyone. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of things I could say about this passage, and I, I want to cover as much as I can, but I do want to, you know, be mindful. I can't say everything. And so my main point this morning is this. The kingdom of God is for everyone because the only requirement for citizenship is faith. The kingdom of God is for everyone because the only requirement for citizenship is faith. Now, that's loaded, right? That's a loaded statement. What, what, what is the kingdom of God? What's the difference between the kingdom of God and the church? All these kinds of questions pop up in our head, and I don't want to assume that you know what these words are, and so let me give you some definitions. When I say the church, I mean the redeemed people of God, living righteously, doing good deeds from faith. Okay, so, so that's the church. And when I say the gospel, I mean that's the good news about Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death and resurrection for us as sinners. Okay, and so... The kingdom of God is made manifest when the church goes forth with good deeds while speaking the gospel. And those who encounter the kingdom of God are often blessed by their proximity to it. Okay? So keep that in mind as we go. Actually, I I would encourage you to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of Matthew. Okay, so here's where we're going this morning. Number one. I want to show us that the kingdom is for everyone, everywhere. No exceptions. Secondly, I want to talk about how the, how the kingdom is, is offered to people and, and you enter the kingdom by faith. And thirdly, we see that the blessings of the kingdom flow from the cross. Okay, first thing, the kingdom is for everyone, everywhere. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Read them again with me. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, being Jesus, said to him, I'll come and heal him. So let me draw a few contextual points here as as I sort of explain this. Notice in verse 5 that this man is a centurion, okay? So centurions, they were Roman military leaders given authority over a specific region to govern and rule. And in the case of this centurion, he oversaw Capernaum, which was predominantly a Jewish area. And the thing is, most Romans were hated by the Jews because, you know, the Romans, they treated the Jews poorly. They didn't really care about their religious practices, their way of life. They ruled with an iron fist. However, this story is also told in Luke's gospel, which actually complicates things a little bit. Luke says that this man was actually a God-fearer. In other words, this man was 
Jewish in terms of his beliefs, but a Gentile in terms of his cultural practices and ethnicity. And then to make things even more complicated, Luke tells us that this centurion actually helped get a synagogue built in Capernaum. So this man was a little bit of an enigma, a sort of contradiction, right? He's hard to pin down. We should also take note of the fact that this centurion had a deep concern and care for his servant or his slave, which wasn't always the case with the Romans. So he goes to Jesus and he begs him to heal his slave. And after all, what what hope did the slave have of being healed of such a disease, right? We're not talking about, you know, a scrape on the hand or a broken foot or something like that. We're talking about paralysis. Imagine a young man bound to his bed, unable to walk, unable to move, bed sores, muscles deteriorating. deteriorating. That's his situation. So unlike the other healings that we've seen thus far, this centurion goes out of his way, interceding on behalf of his servant because the servant can't go to Jesus on his own and ask for healing. Notice, too, in verse 6, how this centurion approaches Jesus. He approaches Jesus and calls him Lord. And this is remarkable when you really think about it because According to Matthew's gospel, no one, no one has has called Jesus Lord yet. Not even the Jews. And lo and behold, the first person to call Jesus Lord, and not in the vain sense that Jesus condemns in chapter 7, verse 22, the first person to call Jesus Lord is a Roman centurion. I imagine, (laughs) as I think about this, I imagine that Matthew... And this man had a lot in common, seeing as how Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. It could be that he and Matthew worked together. We're not sure, but the parallels are interesting. And lastly, notice how Jesus responds in verse 7. The text simply says, I will come and heal him. And that's that's not a bad reading of the text, or rendering of the the text. but, But the Greek, which lies underneath this reading, tells us that Jesus' statement is, it's more like a question. It's more like Jesus is saying, oh, w- would you like me to come and, and, and heal him? It's, it's not that Jesus wasn't willing, but rather his question invites the centurion to show his faith. In fact, Jesus' question is soaked in sympathy. The fact that Jesus, a Jew, was willing to enter the home of a Roman centurion, a man whom he had no business dealing with, shows us the heart of Christ. And by extension, it shows us the nature of the kingdom, which is that the kingdom of God is for everyone, everywhere. Well, a few weeks ago, we heard that Jesus preached and talked with authority, so much so that it astounded those who heard him. And last week, we saw that the power that Jesus has extends beyond his words and is shown by his healing. And now this week, we see that the kingdom and Christ's authority to heal extends beyond the ceremonially unclean to those who are considered ethically um, and ethnically unclean. Jesus was breaking down 
the sort of ethnic misconceptions that the Jews held about God's kingdom that had formed for many years. But the Old Testament has plenty of passages that foreshadow the worship of all people across the world. But it was a mystery, as Paul says in Ephesians. And the Jews had narrowed down the scope of verses in Isaiah, for example, which say, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will prepare a banquet for all peoples, a feast of aged wine, of choice meat, of finely aged wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove the disgrace of his people from the whole earth. You see, Jews tended to see passages like this as God gathering the scattered Israelites, the scattered Hebrews from across the world. But they didn't realize that being a true Israelite was never fundamentally about race or ethnicity. And so, family, there's much in this section that should give us pause, make us think. Do you view other people straightforwardly, as Jesus does in this passage? Do you view people how Jesus viewed the centurion? After all, this this man was hard to pin down. There were a lot of stereotypes that Jesus and others could have held on to, but Jesus didn't. Jesus understood that the kingdom was for everyone. Do you? What animosity or stereotypes or misunderstandings cloud your view of other people? When you see someone who is different from you or what you're used to, what what image shines most brightly in your mind? Is it the image of God and all of the radiance that this person truly possesses? Or is it the image of what you thought a black man was supposed to look like or sound like? Or is it the image of what you thought a Chinese person was supposed to look like based upon that one movie you saw? This is a call to see people for who they actually are, not who they might be or seem to be. But the intensity of this moment doesn't stop here. Verses 6 through 13 show us what I consider to be the linchpin of this interaction. 6 through 13 show us that the kingdom is open to everyone, everywhere, because entrance into it is only by faith. That's it. Entrance into the kingdom is by faith. With the utmost sympathy, Jesus asks this. He says, would you like me to come to him? Would you like me to go inside your house and heal this slave? And the centurion's reply is astounding. He says in verses 8 through 9, you know what, Lord? I'm not even worthy of having you to come into my house. Just speak the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. The centurion says, I understand how authority works. I'm an officer in the military, and I have soldiers under me. They have to listen to me. I tell them to do this and that, and they, and they go and they do it. But you, Jesus, I've heard about your authority. And I believe your authority is from none other than God. 
Cars, this centurion sees something that many people don't, which is that Jesus' authority isn't bound by time, space, or anything. My parents were both in the military, and they were both highly ranked and had lots of authority, authority that they made known to me basically every day. (laughs) Um, My mother was a major in the army, and my dad was a sergeant. If they told people to do X, Y, or Z, provided it was constitutional, they had to do it. (laughs) And the consequences for disobedience could mean being kicked out of the military or even sent to prison. But of course, even my parents were people under authority. For example, if the colonel came to my mom and told her to do X, Y, or Z, she had to do it. And then, of course, if the president of the United States flew Air Force One to Podunk, Waynesville, Missouri, and told my mother that she was to go somewhere on some sort of mission, then she had to do it. And this is just a faint analogy of the kind of authority that Jesus has. Not over one man, not over just his disciples, but over all of creation and all of reality. This is what the centurion understood and was willing to submit to. For Matthew, this is what faith looks like. But verse 10 shows us that the centurion causes Jesus to do something that we only see twice in the entire Bible. And that's marvel. The text says this in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he, he marveled. And said to those who follow him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Brothers and sisters, there are many things that make us marvel, aren't there? I once heard a story of a pianist who was so talented and so gifted that she was invited to France's most elite music school, not at the age of 25 or 15, but at the age of five. Marvel. When I was teaching at West Middle School, one of my students was so smart that he was reading at a graduate school grade level. He was so smart that he took one of the state's world's, uh, world geography quizzes, which is one of those quizzes you can't study for, and he only missed two out of 50 questions. He was the kind of student that I had that I kind of prayed that you know, he wouldn't raise his hand in class because uh, I wasn't sure what he was going to say or if he was going to correct me. Marvel. Right? I had a student who was so good at basketball, he once scored 45 points in a basketball game. Needless to say, I was playing defense when we played a pickup game. Marvel. When I was coaching track, there was a kid in eighth grade who was so fast, he ran a mile, not in five minutes, but in four minutes and 33 seconds. Marvel. Yet what causes Jesus to marvel? Is it accolades? Is it talent? Is it intellect? No. Faith. That's it. Pure, plain, and simple. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that you and I are too easily impressed? Isn't it ironic that faith is the one thing anyone can have but so few possess? Jesus never saw faith like this, not even in Israel, the nation that had so much of God's revelation, right? 
But faith is coming from this man, this, this walking contradiction, this stereotyped evil Gentile. It's this man who has faith that makes the God of wonder marvel. Jesus has never healed someone without touching them, let alone a Gentile. But this Gentile believes that Jesus can do that which no one has ever seen or heard. This centurion, he believes in the power of the word of God. And God's word has always carried supreme and irrefutable power, hasn't it? We see this in Genesis when God simply speaks things into existence. God just breathes and life is created. God doesn't have to labor for days or he doesn't need to consult other gods as other world religions show their gods doing. Nor does he need petty intermediaries. He, he simply speaks and it instantly comes to pass. And Jesus, being the Word made flesh, is recognized for who he truly is. And so Jesus uses this occasion to warn the Jews in Jesus' day. We see this in verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. The language here is provocative. Jesus describes a great gathering of people from all over the world reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The scholars point out that this is a picture of the new heavens and new earth. It's a place of feasting, community, and fellowship. Sounds exciting, right? And the Jews would have looked forward to this day, and they would have looked forward to seeing the patriarchs. I mean, after all, these men walked with God. They heard God directly. These were the guys who the promises were made to. The Jews wouldn't have expected that Gentiles would be at this table. But Jesus' words here melts away their ethnocentrism and pride. Jesus says, you know what, the, the table was never just reserved for you. You know that, right? In fact, the table was reserved for their enemies. And if they didn't believe in the way that this Gentile man believed, then they would find themselves in hell, a place of weeping, darkness, and utter pain. In other words, Jesus is saying entrance into this kingdom is by faith alone. It's not by ethnicity, race, or intellect, or any man-made barrier. You see, the kingdoms of the world require you to demonstrate a reason for you being there, don't they? You know, you, you got to show your intellect or your skills or your need, and, and even then, there's no guarantee. But the only requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God is your admission that you don't belong in the kingdom of God. And if that's all that's required, then the kingdom truly is for everyone because no one is worthy of entry. And that's what many Jews in Jesus' day missed. It only requires one thing, faith. The kind of faith that cherishes, cherishes Jesus' authority, like this Gentile. And so, family, I am convinced that this passage is utterly important for our day and age because we tend to fall into one of two sort of errors. On the one hand, 
We take this sort of all-encompassing view of salvation for granted, don't we? While we, we sort of cringe at the thought of Jesus sending anyone to hell except, you know, for Hitler or the aunt that you don't like. We simply believe that hell doesn't exist because somehow we've convinced ourselves that we're more merciful than God. Of course, on the other hand, we tend to stereotype people or exclude or simply ignore those who aren't like us, thus showing that at least subconsciously, right, we kind of relish the thought of a monolithic kingdom. After all, when you imagine the kingdom of God, what kinds of people come to mind? Who's the offer of the kingdom of God for? You know, as I was thinking over the sermon earlier this week, um, I ran across a Cars graphic from a long time ago that said this. Now, I'm not going to put the graphic up because it won't work its way into the formatting, but here's what the text of the graphic said. And this is something that Cars <laughs> created a while ago. This is before my time. Um, and it's, it's pretty shocking. But here it is. Here's what the graphic says. We love bums, thieves, racists, slackers, and foreigners because Christ first loved us. We love whores, overweight people, junkies, CEOs, cheaters, lunatics, because Christ first loved us. We love tax collectors, porn stars, anarchists, convicts, preachers, because Christ first loved us. We love liars, deadbeats, politicians, queers, because Christ first loved us. We love jerks, televangelists, misogynists, drunks, and sinners, because Christ first loved us. We love fools, homosexuals, homophobes, and homeless people because Christ first loved us. We love crooks, whiners, republicans, shut-ins, sexists, and abusers because Christ first loved us. Does this shock you? Why? Because it shouldn't. If I'm right, and the kingdom is for everyone, then what's so shocking about this? Could it be that this is shocking because you can't imagine what the kingdom would look like welcoming such people in? My point is not, hear me out, my point is not that you can practice these things and somehow still call yourself a Christian. No, my point is that you can be these things and still be admitted into the kingdom because the gospel is not change who you are and what you do and then you'll be saved. The gospel is that Jesus died for you while you were still sinning. And the more you trust him and submit to his authority, the more you'll be blessed and changed by it. But before I move on, what do we make of Jesus' words about hell? We can't avoid them, and God forbid we minimize them. And I would invite you to please come up to the side stage and ask questions about this after the gathering. Um, we're not here in that corner to trap you or say gotcha or anything like that. And besides, I know you're going to go home and Google the questions that you have anyways, so why not just talk to a real person about it? Okay. There's at least two things I want to point out, and I'll be brief here. The first thing that this passage shows us about hell is that hell isn't just a place for bad people who do bad things. Hell is a place for good people who do good things. 
Hell isn't just a place for bad people who do bad things. It's a place for good people who do good things. Think about it. By the standards of Jews in Jesus' day, who were the good people? They were the Jews who went to temple, who worshipped, okay? According to Jesus, where would they be if they didn't believe? In hell. Okay? And who were the bad people in Jesus' day? Well, they were the Gentiles and the social outcasts. But according to Jesus, where were they? If they had faith, they were at the table in heaven. Okay? So hell isn't just a place for bad people who do bad things. It's a place for good people who do good things because it's about faith. Secondly, the biblical view of heaven and hell is actually what you deeply want because it's the most inclusive view. In Christianity, there's only one way to be saved, but that way is open to everyone. Other religions and worldviews aren't like this. Think about Islam for a second. What language does Allah speak in Islam? Well, he speaks Arabic, which is why most conservative Muslims will tell you that the only legitimate translation of the Quran are the Arabic ones. This is why you have to learn Arabic if you're a Muslim, to really read the Quran and understand it. And this is why as Islam initially spread, it, was often, it often sort of conflated being Arabic with being Muslim. And it often flattened out non-Arabic cultures. But if you ask Yahweh what language he speaks, the answer is yes. Our God is the God of all nations. And his words and revelation are meant to be translated into different languages so that all people everywhere can be saved, regardless of their culture. And of course, there are worldly kingdoms, right? If your kingdom is that of education, then there's only enough room at the table for smart people. If your kingdom is about liberalism, then you move away from Springfield to St. Louis, and you spend most of your time harping about how backwards your family is. And if your kingdom's about republicanism, then you move from St. Louis to Jeff City, where you don't have to worry about people with different pronouns. And if you're a libertarian, well, you move to Columbia, and you probably attend Karis and, you know, talk about how everybody's wrong. Um, you know, we all have thoughts on these things, right? And my point is not that you should, you know, not think about these things, but you need to realize that these are all pseudo-kingdoms. These are pseudo-redemptive programs. And any kingdom we align ourselves to that isn't the kingdom of God will ultimately and unfairly exclude others. But the kingdom of God is for everyone, everywhere, because it's by faith. And let me just say this, all kinds of people will be in heaven and hell, but all kinds of people will be... Um, you know, there. I mean, it's, it's, it's not about just ethnicity, right? And so if you want inclusivity, there it is. All kinds of people in heaven, all kinds of people in hell. Okay, last point I want to make this morning as we transition to verses 14 through 17. So far, we've seen that the kingdom is open to everyone and that entrance into that kingdom is by faith. But lastly, I want to talk about the blessings of the kingdom and, and where they find their source. The blessings of the kingdom flow from the cross. We see this in verses 14 through 17. Read with me here. 
When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Okay. Here we're given the sort of theological basis for Jesus' ministry, right? I mean, as you look at these passages, it's really easy to think, okay, how does this connect to the larger point, okay? But this is the theological basis for Jesus' healing, okay? So Jesus heals Peter's, uh, Peter's wife, Peter's wife has a mother, okay, so his mother-in-law. He heals her, and he heals her instantly, okay? So much so that she immediately serves him. And then Jesus heals a whole bunch of people who are oppressed by demons. Bobby's going to talk about um, that role in a few weeks, so I won't get into that. But he heals people who are oppressed by demons just by saying a word. And so Matthew's point is that Jesus has the authority to heal the worst of conditions And whom he heals reveals that the blessings of the kingdom are for the most marginalized people, okay? But I think Matthew wants us to see a little bit more here, okay? Matthew says that these healings were part of Jesus' messianic role as a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In other words, Jesus died to forgive the elect of their sins, okay? So he died to forgive us of our sins, but he also died, according to Matthew, so that he might heal those who encounter him in his kingdom. So that's what I mean when I say the blessings flow from the cross, okay? And it's important to mention, too, that those who witness the kingdom, which in this case are those who witness healings and even experience healings, are blessed based upon Jesus' messianic role. But Matthew does something interesting here. He quotes the Hebrew translation of this passage, whereas Peter and Paul, they tend to rely on the Greek translation of Isaiah 53. The Greek translation says that the Messiah will he'll bear our griefs and sorrows, whereas the Hebrew says that the Messiah is going to bear our illness and disease, okay? Now, that might sound, um, I don't know, that might sound kind of confusing, because the question kind of pops up in our head, did Jesus, did he die for our sickness or did he die for our sins? <laughs> See, Anna knows where I'm going. <laughs> but, but it makes you wonder, right? I mean, is Matthew's reading and use of the Old Testament here legitimate? Or more significantly, is our reading of the Old Testament legitimate? Or have we sort of done a little, you know, Christian sleight of hand and we changed things around? Well, the short answer is No. Because in the beginning, when God made people, there wasn't suffering or sickness precisely because there wasn't sin. Sicknesses and death are the consequences of Adam's sin. But Jesus comes, bringing the kingdom of God as the true Adam, ruling in a way that no other king of Israel could. Name a king in Israel who had the authority to simply heal someone from miles away just by a word. Name the king who loved and won over his enemies without himself being spiritually compromised. Name the king of Israel who could lay down his life and pick it up again. Jesus alone has that kind of authority. Jesus 
has set redemption in motion, reversing the effects of the fall. You see, there's a profound sense in which Jesus wouldn't have been able to heal anyone if he didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave because it's by his death that he disarmed the rulers and principalities of this world. So brothers and sisters, I want this last point to grip you, right? Because there's beauty. There's beauty here. We are so used to living under the clouds of sin and death and sickness and suffering that that we forget what the sun feels like. Yet when we read passages like this and behold Christ, we, we catch a glimpse of the kingdom and we're reminded that this isn't all that there is. And as painful as it is, this is just one dimension of reality. The truth is more beautiful than we can imagine. The truth is that the the kingdom is for everyone and anyone. And those who experience the blessings of the kingdom have Jesus to thank because it's through him that we find any sort of healing or respite from the suffering that we face on this side of reality. And so I cl- as I close this morning, I want to I sort of do two things. I want to answer one question that you might be having, and then I want to pose a question for you all. Okay, so this is probably what you might consider the application. So here's the question you might be wondering. If Jesus died to bear our sins and the effects of the curse, sickness specifically, then why do believers still get sick? Furthermore, by faith, I've asked God to heal me or a loved one. Why hasn't he done it? I want to answer this realizing that there is so much wrapped up in this. And I think part of the answer lies in the fact that the kingdom of God has not been fully revealed and implemented yet. And it won't be, brothers and sisters, until Jesus comes back. Okay? So we we can't expect all of the blessings of the kingdom to be ours just because we have faith, okay? And I think a failure to realize this is what's at the core of what's called the prosperity gospel. But I want to say in another more profound sense, you need to know that if you are a Christian, you will be healed. Every Christian experiences total healing. The Christian, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. So in the meantime, you can and you must, you must pray. You must pray for healing because Jesus is still on the throne and he still reigns as king. Is he bound by time and space? Has his heart towards sinners changed? Of course not. So are you longing Or are you longing for a friend to be healed? All Jesus needs to do is say the word. Jesus is able to to heal your friend as if he were standing right here in the flesh. Are you weary? By a word, he's able to sustain the faint-hearted. Are you paralyzed with fear? Jesus can give you boldness just by a word. If you're suffering this morning, Don't lose heart. 
Don't doubt God's goodness. And lastly, as we close, the question I want to pose for you all is, is this. Is your, is your view of the gospel big enough to include all kinds of people at the table? If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you probably haven't heard many people say that Jesus can't save so-and-so, nor have you heard, at least probably you haven't heard, other Christians say that people of certain ethnicities won't be saved. But if you and I are honest, we do have very small tables, don't we? Many of us are okay with heaven being a place of ethnic and social diversity, but sadly it has little bearing on how we act in the here and now. Maybe two signs that your gospel isn't big enough is that you don't really listen to those you disagree with. I mean, if Tucker Carlson said it, then it's it's good enough for you. If so-and-so on the left says it, then that must be truth. But you're not really listening. Your podcasts aren't full of people that you disagree with. Your bookshelf looks pretty seamless. Or maybe on the other side, of that. Your gospel isn't big enough, and that can be demonstrated by the fact that you don't disagree with anyone. You, you got the kumbaya spirit. You, you, for you, it's just, hey, I don't want to disagree with anyone. We're all right, and we should just come together, whatever that means, as if just because you meet in the middle, that somehow makes you right. Sometimes people are wrong, right? I once heard somebody say, you don't want to be so open-minded that your brains fall out. (laughs) And so is your view of the gospel big enough to include all kinds of people at the table? I hope so, because the kingdom is for everyone, everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... (sighs) Man... You reconciled us to yourself. That we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We did not have hope. But in Christ, we've been brought near. Thank you, Jesus, for being our peace.